attitude. Good morning.
Good morning. A little bit of a Spartan crowd this morning. See the McClouds are not here. I don't know if they uh, are feeling ill or they know that I'm going to be leading song today. So perhaps Jared's vacationing still. That will be back the following Sunday. Uh, let's go over a couple of announcements. Andrea is still our contact number. Uh, we have Days of Praise booklets, Acts of Facts. Offering envelopes uh, are still are here in the foyer. And there will be no evening service tonight or next week. Next week is uh, going to be our communion Sunday, and there will be no service in the evening. Uh, and item number six is our Sunday school is coming back, and we're going to need you to, to be involved to make this a success. So if you have uh, a desire to come to, to Sunday school and to learn, then we would encourage you to sign up on the help board, whatever class that you're interested in taking, so we can assign the right and appropriate teachers. Uh, I understand uh, Janelle will be having a minor surgical operation tomorrow, and, and I would encourage the entire congregation to, uh, to keep the family in prayer in the morning outpatient surgery and uh, we'll go to our knees uh, to the Lord uh, for a good resolution for this. So let's keep her in the family in prayers. Any other uh, comments or questions, Terry? Okay. George, of course, can't drive because of his condition and situation, so dependent on Sheila to be able to cart them around everywhere and when she can't drive they're kind of housebound so I pray that uh, they get through that as well. If there's no other comments or questions then uh, our, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Genesis chapter 41 and that will be verse 41 through 57 and that will be page 68 in your pew Bible.
you stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you this hour, we pray that our hearts be purified and that we stand blameless in front of you and that you find favor with our congregation and believers and those who are seeking you out this hour and that you would act on the hearts of the lost that restore and confirm the hearts who you hold in your hand. Be with us as a group of people, as those who follow and worship you, O Lord. Be with this great nation, Lord, that is under persecution and attack, some of it well-deserved by our actions. But Lord, you are the great restorer as well as the creator. You can restore this nation back. And we pray, Lord, that you would deign to do so. Be with pastor as he brings forth the message. Let the words that fall from his lips convict the lost, but reassure those who are in your grasp. Let the lost be drawn to you this hour, Lord. We ask in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Turn with us, uh, hymn number 292, and that'll be out of the hymnal. And I refer back to the first rule of, of leading songs. What's the first rule? Sing loud. Very good. We're learning. Okay. Grant us courage, lest we may 
miss thy kingdom's goal. Yes, we miss thy kingdom's goal. Set our feet on lofty places, gird our lives that they may be armored with the Christ-like graces in the flight to set men free. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, that we fail not men that we fail not men nor thee. Remain standing. We will go and write to our scripture reading this morning. Taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, page 1518. Matthew 13. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed with your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants have said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Next hymn is taken uh, from the hymnal, page 307. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light, the blessed g
it shine from shore to shore. Let us pray that grace may everywhere be found. Send the light, send the light. And a Christ-like spirit everywhere be found. Send the light, send the light, send the light. The blessed gospel light, let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light, the blessed gospel light, let it shine from shore to shore. Let us not grow weary in the work of love. Send the light, send the light, let us Well, you can see that sickness and vacation has taken a toll on our attendance. But we're thankful for those that made it out today. And as we study, we're going to be in Matthew 13 and talk about the weeds and the wheat. We're looking at the parables that Jesus taught to his disciples. And we have learned that it's a form of storytelling. And we ask the question, why would you use a story if you were a teacher? And I listed four things to get across difficult concepts. One reason we use a story. As a capstone to teaching to apply the lessons. Number three, to demonstrate that book learning is fun and practical. And number four, the idea of all three is to produce clarity clarity on what's been taught. It's really amazing that all of us have different uh, ways of learning. What we hear, some are really good at what they hear and they can apply it. Others need to see it with their eyes. Others need to experience it, kind of a hands-on way of learning. That's all fine because God you know, recognizes the differences in all of us. But as far as the scripture is concerned, and particularly with the disciples, uh, they certainly proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And then in their missionary journeys, they certainly had times of one-on-one. I think of Lydia by the riverside. Remember how Paul ministered to her. 
And the scripture says the Lord opened her heart to believe the things that the apostle was teaching her. And then there's other times when uh, it, it's a family group kind of thing. He visits houses and uh, people are gathered there to learn. And then other times it's kind of like in the city square where he opens up the gospel. And that usually caused quite a consternation because the Jews were offended at what Jesus had to say. And nonetheless, he preached the truth. We gave a number of reasons why Jesus used parables. Number one, to bless his disciples with abundant wisdom into the things of God. Yes, they got their original knowledge of spiritual matters from God himself as his gift to them. They were good soil. And they heard the word of God. They understood it, verse 23. And that's the hearing with the heart that we talked about. But even unbelievers hear with their ears, but they do not understand, verse 13 says so. They can hear all they want, but they don't understand. Second reason Jesus used parables was to confound and obscure the truth to those who had hard hearts because of their unbelief. So it's kind of this dual thing. To the disciples, it was an enlightenment. They learned more. To the unbelieving, they're scratching their head and they're saying, I don't get the point of this story at all. And that's the way it goes. There are those who oppose the word of God and Jesus Christ in their own lives. They lack understanding in the, uh, and that's found in the unbelieving. And it's their own fault by refusing to listen. And then we ask the question, well, why doesn't God, you know, why doesn't he change these people's hearts as he did with the disciples? And the answer to that is because he is not obligated to be merciful to anyone. Put it this way, there are no demands on mercy. No demands on mercy. Mercy is something undeserved. It is at the discretion of the judge whether he's going to show mercy or not. God has willed to be merciful only to those of his choosing. And it goes along with the story of the potter. The potter has a right to do with the clay as he sees fit to create a vessel of honor or a vessel fit for destruction. Today we come to the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And again, it is one of these stories in which the meaning is spelled out by Jesus. I particularly like these parables because we don't have to guess as to what Jesus meant by the story. He tells us what he meant by the story. And even with that said... The unbelieving crowd just did, boom, went right over their head. They didn't get it. But his disciples got it. And that's the important bar. So as we come, let's ask the Lord to enable us to understand the story. I thank you, Lord, for using the parables in this dual way. To bless your disciples and to confound your enemies. And only you can do things like this. So I praise you for that.
and it demonstrates to us once again that you are God and God alone and the affairs of life don't just happen by happenstance the affairs of life are controlled by your sovereignty you determine whether the word of God is going to bring forth good, good soil and good seed and good plants or whether or not it's going to be a weed and I just pray that you will help us to see that and to show us in seeing that, that we are at your mercy. We really are. We can't demand anything from you. We can plead, we can pray, and we can call upon your graciousness to be merciful. But the final decision is yours. And we thank you that you are God that way. And no one can twist your arm. No one can badger you into making a decision that is against your will and we praise you for that there's only one god in the universe and it's you and we praise you now help us to understand this parable as we talk about the weeds and the wheat in christ's name amen <clears throat> our text is matthew 13 beginning at verse 24. familiar statement here again the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field now immediately you can recognize that we are back to the farm so to speak with another story based on the well-known agro business enterprise of palestine but this story is unique in its own right we are not simply reading a carbon copy of the story of the sower Jesus was not redundant in his teaching, but complementary. Each story relates to the other, but there are new and important truths which are brought out and new lessons to learn. So let's take a look at this story. A farmer planted his fields with good seed. And good seed means that it wasn't outdated stock from last year, which had little potential to germinate and bring forth a crop. Anyone who had ever done garden planting has been tempted to use old leftover seeds from the previous year. But you gamble when, you're, when you do that. You gamble on your crop. Secondly, while everyone was sleeping, this man's enemy came and we read, verse 25, he sold weeds among the wheat, and then he went away. Tell you the truth, this would be virtually impossible to detect even in the brightest noonday sun. But after the wheat sprouted and began to develop its heads, then it became apparent that weeds had been deliberately sown in the field. You will say, well, you know, ever since the curse of God upon creation for Adam's sin, weeds have grown in farmers' fields. That's true. Millions of dollars are spent annually on herbicides to deal with America's weed infestations in our croplands. So what is so surprising about a field that has weeds? Well, as you know, when farmers prepare their fields for planting, they plow under the weeds, turn the roots up 
which exposes them to the sun, causing them to dry out and die. They also use discs to harrow the ground, slicing through the weed stubble and pulverizing the roots and the hard ground to make the soil smooth and soft for planting the crop seed. In this way, the weeds actually become compost for the crop. Eventually, some of the weed seed, which fell on the ground in the fall, it does germinate along with the crop seed, but usually at a later date, usually at a greater reduced volume to that of the crop seed. But that is not, it is not the scenario Jesus paints for us in this story. Here, after all the preparation of the field by the farmer, the plowing, the disking, the harrowing, when the field was perfect for planting, an enemy came in the night and planted weed seed right on top of the well-prepared soil, alongside the crop seed, which the farmer had just sown that day. Now, only an enemy would do that. This was an agrarian culture. People depended upon their farmland to feed their families. But here this enemy comes in and he seeks to create havoc. No farmer in his right mind would give equal opportunity for his field of hosts to host weeds along with the good seed. And so Jesus is not talking about a field of wheat with a disproportionate amount of competing weeds. Rather, he is describing a field in which there are as much weeds as wheat growing. Probably more weeds, since an enemy would sow heavier with the idea of choking out and destroying the crop. So thirdly, imagine the surprise of the farmer when the vegetation began to emerge. Verse 27. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? And the idea here is, where did so many weeds come from? As the landowner looked out over his field, he saw a sea of weeds as far as the eye could see, standing tall, head to head with the wheat, and competing on equal or greater footing with the good seed which he had planted, and it took him but a few moments to conclude how this could have happened. The logical conclusion, verse 28, an enemy did this. This is so extraordinary. That's the only thing we can come up with. An enemy did this. Okay. That being the case, what do we do about the problem? The field is 
just scattered with weed seed growing right alongside of the good plants. The first immediate response was proposed by this farmer's servants who suggested, well, we can send all of the servants to the fields and we'll just pull all the weeds up. <laughs> we're, we're talking farmer's fields here. This would be a monumental task at best. But I suppose it could be done over days and weeks of organized weeding in which each section of the field was systematically sectioned off and then weeded. But this immediate solution was really no solution at all. The farmer knew that while his servants were pulling the weeds, they would uproot the wheat plants right alongside those weeds. Verse 29. And this was highly likely for two reasons. Number one, be like when Dee and I had our garden in Pennsylvania and whenever we would come back from vacation, our strawberry patch was loaded with weeds. So Don and I tracked through the field and we tackled the whole task of trying to weed it. Now, as you know, strawberry plants establish themselves for the next season by sending out these runners at the end of which is a new plant that's formed. So as we began to pull the weeds, which were about a foot tall, we had to be careful because the little strawberry plants at the end of these runners were just shallow-rooted. I mean, really. Hardly in the ground. They could not stand having the soil next to them disturbed by uprooting the weeds. And so... We had to literally hold the strawberry plants in the ground with one hand and pull the weeds with the other hand. And we had to do that every time we came close to one of these immature plants. In similar fashion, pulling up weeds in a wheat field, in which the weeds are as close to the wheat as possible would undoubtedly result in uprooting the good crop along with the weeds. Verse 29. But there's another problem. The Greek word for weeds here is an Aramaic term, zitzanium, zitzanium. The Greek scholar Thayer writes, it is a kind of darnel or bastard wheat, resembling wheat, except that the grains are black. Hmm. Patrick Fairbairn writes in his Bible Encyclopedia, At first emergence, it is impossible for an ordinary observer to distinguish a blade of darnel from a blade of wheat. As described to me, they are not to be distinguished from the wheat until the ears appear. The seed resembles wheat in form, but it's smaller 
and black. He goes on to describe what happens if the Darnell grain is mixed with wheat flour when you're making your bread. He writes, when not separated from the wheat, bread made from the flour often causes dizziness to those who eat it. Darnell has the bad reputation of yielding the only deleterious, that is hurtful or noxious, grain among all the countless grasses. If it is mixed with bread, Darnell occasions giddiness, nausea, difficulty of articulation, and other symptoms ranging from intoxication to paralysis, and instances are recorded of where mortification of the extremities, your hands or your arms, die, or even death has ensued. Hence, the French have named it tipsy grass. End of quote. Now you can readily see that with a weed which so closely resembles wheat until the head or the grain appears, it would be important to try to weed a field of wheat deliberately polluted with darnel. You can't do that until the time of harvest when the fruit of the plant would clearly distinguish the weed from the wheat. I'm reminded of Jesus' words concerning false teachers. By their fruit, you shall know. Not their appearance while they're growing, but by their fruit, what they produce. So this farmer was wise to say to his servants, let both grow together until the time of harvest. Verse 30. Now what does this story of the weeds and the wheat mean? Well, look at verse 36. Then he let the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, and they said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of God, or son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who will do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun, in the kingdom of their father, he who has an ear, let him hear. 
What does this story of the weeds and the wheat mean? Well, here, as with the parable of the sower, we have a God-interpreted account of this story. Nothing is left to our own definition. In contrast to the parable of the sower, the emphasis in this story is not on the soil of men's hearts. It's not on the reception of the gospel, which various kinds of people have to the gospel. We remember the hard-hearted, the shallow-rooted, the distracted, and then the good soil that we talked about. In the parable of the weeds, Jesus describes the two kinds of people who are in the world, his kingdom, to whom they belong, and what will be their end. He demonstrates the rivalry which exists between himself and the devil, and between the children of the evil one and the true sons of the kingdom, verse 37, and finally, we are given a brief description of the events at the end of the age, verse 40. Notice, firstly, that Jesus is not simply talking about people in the church, but about the entire world, verse 37. The field is the world, he says. This explains why there is this admixture of weeds among the wheat. As noted previously, this is one of the distinguishing characteristics of the kingdom of God as distinct from the church, the body of Christ. But if we note for the moment that in the visible local church there are to be found both true and false members, it's fair to say that the world has invaded the surrounds of the church as well. In other words, the world is everywhere we live. You cannot even look upon the local church as a safe haven from the influences of the world. While Baptists believe in a regenerate church membership in which we do not consciously admit people to church membership unless they give evidence of being born anew by God's Spirit, it is also true that the examination of candidates for church membership is not foolproof. For example, Judas was accepted by his fellow disciples as being of the same mind and the same heart as them. But he was a devil in disguise, known only to the master himself. Or again in Acts 9, excuse me, Acts, Acts 8, Simon Magnus, a sorcerer of Samaria, sufficiently convinced Philip that he had renounced his occult practices and had believed savingly in Jesus so that Philip baptized him. Wow. And Simon was incorporated into the church of Samaria. But when Peter and John came from Jerusalem, it wasn't long before Peter saw through Simon's charade and he exposed the fact that his heart and in Peter's words, is not right before God. Acts 8, verse 21. So you see that even from the early days of the church, the weeds have been sown among the wheat, and they live and grow among the people of God, as well as among the unchurched pagans of society. They are in the local church, as well as in the habitats of the world. 
And I must tell you that Thornville Baptist is not exempt from this phenomenon. We're not. Our church is not immune from the teaching of this parable and more than any other church, any more than any other church in our community. Our orthodoxy does not protect us at this point. Nor does our allegiance to the scriptures. Nor does the emphasis in teaching on personal holiness and godly conduct. All of which Jesus faithfully taught Judas along with the other disciples. These things comprise the good seed which has sprouted, taken shape. But even in this seedbed environment where the truth of the gospel is faithfully proclaimed every Sunday, reiterated in our statement of faith, weeds are planted whose only similarity to the sons of God is that they look like the sons of God externally. Just facts. So what do we do about it? Well, if a person's conduct in time evidences no true life in Christ, as in the case of Simon Magnus, Acts 8, that person is to be put out of the church, not only for the sake of the church's reputation, but for that person's own soul's sake, so that he or she can understand the gravity of their state before God. But having said that, and believing this to be the biblical course of action, in the discovered hypocrite, Jesus' parable here addresses a different issue. He's not talking about people whose false identity can be discovered in this life. He's talking about people who look like wheat, smell like wheat, live like wheat, and for all intent and purposes are identifiable as the sons of the kingdom? but who in reality are sons of the evil one, verse 38. Whoa. While you and I may have our suspicions as to the true spiritual state of some people, we can do, do little else in such cases than to wait for harvest day. When the kernels of wheat turn golden brown and the kernels of Darnell, the weed, turn black. This gives new understanding to the test which Jesus gave in Matthew 7, verse 16, by which we are to discern between the righteous and the wicked, and that test was this, by their fruit you will recognize them by their fruit. You gotta wait till a harvest. You gotta see what they produce. So yes, by their fruit, but for many, it will only be in the great harvest day when Jesus sends forth the angels who will, and I'm reading scripture, weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil Verse 41, it will only be then that the fruit will be known. How can this be? Well, 
Well, firstly, because weeds look and act like the part of wheat to such a degree that though we have our suspicions, we cannot pinpoint enough glaring inconsistencies to know for sure that they are really plants of the evil one. So these weeds look like Christians. They do the things that Christians do. They attend church. They pray. They give of their financial resources, and they do it gladly. They teach Sunday school classes. They serve as church officers. They work on committees and in many ways help to advance the cause of Christ outwardly. They are not troublemakers. They do not badmouth the leadership. They do not undermine the pastor's authority. They do not speak unkindly of others. They do not indulge in lustful lifestyles. They are not leeches on the church community, but rather contribute in many positive ways to the good of the church. Matthew 7, verse 22, they prophesy in Jesus' name, they drive out demons, they perform miracles. Whoa. This makes it really hard, doesn't it? Figure this out. So in what, <laughs> in what then is the defect? It is in this. There's no change in their nature. That is in who and what they are. Darnell, for all of its appearances as wheat, is nonetheless a poisonous weed by nature. And if its grain is used in bread flour, it will cause nausea, it'll cause paralysis, and eventually it'll cause death. There is nothing wholesome in it, though it may look like something just as good as the wheat when you're making your loaf of bread. But looks are deceiving. And many people are self-deceived by their own looks. They've played the part of Christian so long that they believe that they are Christian. And it's difficult to convince them otherwise. So what's the test? Well, the test involves self-diagnosis. Two people know your heart's true condition this morning. You and God. Two people. We may have suspicions about some, but that's all they are. They're just suspicions. We think, well, good, then I must be truly a child of God. Well, not necessarily. Because our opinion means nothing. We could be wrong. In fact, I guarantee you that we will be wrong. We could think of one as a Christian when in reality he or she might be a son or a she of the, de of the evil one. 
the church may treat you as a believer when you know that there's no spiritual appetite in your life. These things are not good enough to assure your future. But there's a second problem. The second problem here, which makes it necessary to wait until Judgment Day to know for sure the outcome of the plants growing in the world, the problem of genuine sons of God, genuine sons of God, living like the devil for a period of time in their lives. Here again, looks are deceiving. The life of Jonah the prophet, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the sensuality of Samson with Delilah, the incest of Lot with his own daughters, David's sin with Bathsheba, they all testify to the reality that believing people can be so, become so engrossed in personal sin as to appear to be weeds when in fact they are rogue wheat. Men may judge. He, she, cannot possibly be saved, they will say. But that judgment can be false because we cannot read the heart. If you had come into David's life at the time when he orchestrated the death of Uriah to cover up his adulterous affair with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, if this is all the Bible said about King David, you would conclude that he was not a man of God at all. You would. You would conclude that he used his kingly power no more nobly than the pagan emperor Caligula, who fornicated with his own sisters at will. Bottom line, because weed people look and act the part of wheat, and wheat people look and act the part of weeds at times, all of us are locked into the future harvest for the final disposition of the matter. Scary. Not scary to Jesus, though, because Jesus taught his disciples, I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. It goes on. I give them eternal life, and they shall never. John 10, verse 28. Boy, these are important words to keep in mind when we read in our text that the Son of Man, Jesus, sends out his angels, firstly to harvest out of his kingdom all the weeds who for years were growing amidst the wheat, bundle them up for the fire, and then secondly to harvest the wheat and bring the wheat into the barn. Let me assure you that Jesus will make no mistake of choosing wheat for Darnell to be burned or of choosing Darnell for his barns of wheat. Jesus knows who belongs to him. And he knows those who just think they belong to him. When in fact, they have lived their whole lives as evildoers 
You can read about that in Matthew 7, verse 23. He knows. So it is important, may I say vitally important, for you to know where you stand before God this morning. It will be extremely too late on Judgment Day. And that is why Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear. Now's your day to hear. Now's your day to listen. Verse 14, verse 15 of our text. And I think it's extremely gracious of God to warn us like this. Why? Because if you're among the weeds, the judgment of God fixes your doom irreversibly. Verse 42. They, the angel harvesters, will throw them, the weeds, into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, this expression used by Jesus appeared in 8 in verse 12. It will appear again in verse 50 in the parable of the net. It is used in Matthew 24, verse 51, again describing the final end of the unrepentant sinner. The fact that there's weeping associated with people who have been cut to pieces by the sword of God's judgment, Matthew 24, verse 51, or for people consumed by fire or burned, verse 30 of our text, demonstrates that whatever hell is like, it's not a state of annihilation. That is to say, you don't just go there and then God kills you and that's it. You just, you're not around anymore. No, hell is a place where weeping goes on perpetually. This is not the weeping of sorrow for the sins of one's past. It has nothing to do with the separation from loved ones. It has nothing to do with unjust treatment be received from others. These are not tears of wounded pride because one has gotten has not gotten his or her own way. These are not the tears of bereavement or of sympathy. The tears of which Jesus speaks have to do with author Hendrickson says as inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness and utter everlasting hopelessness not going to change these people are lost and so maybe for the first time in their lives they know they're lost but the first realization is their last for they know they are lost now forever hopeless no hope of recovery no hope of remission there are no tears, brethren, like the tears of people who have lost all hope. But in case you may be feeling sorry for such people, do not forget the second word in this account. Jesus says there will be gnashing of teeth. This is an expression of hatred and anger. Let me give you an example. When Stephen told the Jewish council that they were stiff-necked and rebellious people who always resist the Holy Spirit, when he accused their forefathers of persecuting 
the prophets of God and them of murdering the righteous one predicted to come, namely Jesus, we are told when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Acts 7, verse 54. Oh, they did more. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and they stoned him to death. Now, this grinding of the teeth by the unbelieving demonstrates that even in hell, even in hell, there is no cessation of their anger and hatred towards God. In other words, they hated Christ in their life. And they hate him still in their torment. They killed him once on a tree. And if they could, they'd do it all over again. Nothing has changed in their lives. You ever know anyone with such deep-seated anger and hatred? sobering to think about could that someone be you let me tell you if it is your anger will take you to hell unless you repent your anger will not bring God down nor the wheat to ruin but it will consume you What about the wheat? Verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We who know the Lord, today is our day of sorrow. Today. Today. We live in a cursed world because of sin. We share existence with the weeds who poison, pollute everything from human relationships to politics. The hallucinating theme of living for pleasure, the entrapment of running after wealth, position, power, are everywhere around us. The world is in control of the media, the schools, the government, the businesses. Its philosophies make us sick to the stomach, killing babies, of all things. And its programs paralyze the advancement of the kingdom of God. I mean, it looks like the devil is winning and God is losing. It looks that way. There are more weeds than wheat. And God's barn is not full while the world sails along in opulence and plenty. And we weep in sorrow. Ah, but take heart. Jesus, the Lord of glory, has promised that in the kingdom of God, the God who is our Father, we are destined to shine like the sun.
In Revelation 7, verse 17, it reads, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There you have it. Two peoples with two distinct destinies, pleasure, laughs, self-indulgence, now, followed by an eternity of weeping and grinding teeth in torment later, or, or, sorrow now, heartache, suffering, because of the advancement of sin and wickedness, but an eternity of shining glory as in the sun later. So what's going to be for you? This is the gospel. Jesus preached. The world hardly knows it. They're not prepared for a God like this. Because all they hear is God loves everybody and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And they piece that together. Well, he loves everybody. He loves me. Loves me. I'm safe. Now they don't read the scripture that says God is angry with the wicked every day. If you don't know the book, you don't know what God has said. You make your make up your own theology and your own history, and you project your own destination. There's no way to find out the truth. May the Lord grant us his insight. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. These parables, boy, they're scary. They're comforting, too, but they're scary. They're comforting in that they show us what it will be and what it is for those who know God through Jesus Christ. But they're scary for us who think that just going through the motions, just being religious, makes us a child of God. We're in the same field. We're growing on the same soil. But we could be weeds instead of wheat. And the weeds are destined to be gathered and thrown into the furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Only the wheat will be gathered and brought into the barns that belong to God's land. Thank you for the truth. Please set us free from the lies of the evil one. Help us to be honest in our evaluation of ourselves and to plead for mercy if in fact we find ourselves lacking the true salvation that promises that is promised in Christ and we'll bless you for what you're going to do for us in Jesus name Amen Our closing hymn is from the hymnal number 410 
you come to that, please stand with us. And if I may be so bold, I would ask us, before we begin, to read the fourth verse to yourselves. And just dwell on that for just a brief moment. that be true of all of us here today. May this life be the preparation for the life to come. May we rejoice in Christ and his great salvation, mercifully given to us, not because we deserve it, but because of your grace. We thank you for that. Please help these parables that we're studying to really reach into our hearts. We know that when you gave these stories, this was to illustrate what society was really like in your day 
Well, it hasn't changed in our day. In fact, it's gotten worse. So we pray, Lord, that you will apply these truths to our heart. Redeem us. Save us from this wicked world. For the glory of Christ and for our good, we ask. Amen. Thank you all.